tonight, if you're looking with your Bible, uh, Daniel is about two-thirds of the way through your Bible, almost into the New Testament. If you're at Ezekiel, if, you're, uh, if you've got arrived at Ezekiel, keep watching. Jeremiah's coming, or Ezekiel, <laughs> Daniel's coming very quickly. But the, I, the goal for this uh, week and this weekend and next weekend is that we get a little time to talk specifically about what God is doing with the prophets, how those prophecies affect or speak to our time. And then I also want to talk to how the prophets, in the way they, they are um, themselves living through difficult times, speak to us and speak to us about difficult times. So as we talk through those things, I just want to, uh, to encourage you to pray, ask God what he wants to say to you, and uh, always pray for the preacher. So would you bow your heads with me? Father God, we are grateful for your blessings. Tonight, as we begin a look through your word that's, granted, going to be fairly quick, I pray that you will guide the process here, that you will guide over the next few days as we share some things from your word that bless and guide what we understand about you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Daniel chapter 2. So the reason we picked Daniel is because Daniel chapter 2 in particular sets us up for an understanding of how prophetic things are being taught through Daniel and Revelation. Daniel chapter 2 takes place um, after Daniel has arrived in Babylon and has been there for about three years. As we understand the prophecy and the process that he's gone under, you have to get a grip on what Daniel's gone through in order to understand the impact of what's happening. Daniel has been captured from his home. He has been, with about 10,000 other people, led from Jerusalem to Babylon, probably a trip of between 1,000 and 1,200 miles, depending on the process, how they go, what direction they go, because they would leave Jerusalem. I'll show you this on a map in just a minute. They would travel north into some mountains above, uh, above Samaria. Damascus area is what we're, Syria would be, the Damascus area today. And they, when they would follow that to the northeast and cross over until they got to the uh, Tigris-Euphrates. Typically, the, the caravans would then pass down either the Tigris or the Euphrates out of the hills in the north down. And then Babylon is almost at the end of the Euphrates. And so it goes, they go all the way then down to the very southern portion, um, which is actually only 400 miles straight across from Jerusalem. So if you think of, if, if you remember where Jerusalem is, and again, I'll show you this again. Jerusalem is here. Babylon is here. But there's a desert that's almost impassable between them. So you have to go up and around, a passage of about 1,000 miles. He was taken as a prisoner. He was intended to be, to be trained in order to be a person who would lead in the, excuse me, adjust that back a little bit. A person who would lead in the government of Babylon on behalf of Israel or in Israel on behalf of Babylon. And so as he's brought there, he's brought there to be taught. He's, he's picked because of his intelligence. He's picked because of his acumen. He's probably picked because he's attractive. The kings didn't want ugly people hanging around them. And so they would pick all these attractive people and take them out. And so this is his, his role. Um, for the grown-ups in the room, he is likely made a eunuch. He is likely turned into a eunuch because you did not want to risk someone coming into the palace who could cause an accident who could end up uh, with a child to one of the ladies there who was in the harem, who would be a, a possible successor to the king. So they, did, they would make sure that this was not possible for males. So you get the picture of what happened to Daniel. He's then indoctrinated. So they're attempting to change his name to indoctrinate him. 
So if you cha- they change your name so that you have a different opinion of yourself, you have a different understanding. They name him after one of their gods. And so the process is intended to give him a Babylonian identity through and through. He is not probably taught, as we can tell, he's, he's probably not one of the magicians or astrologers. He's probably what they would call a Chaldean. A Chaldean's responsibility was to understand the records, the rules, and those kinds of things, and make sure you're ready at any time to interpret those things or tell those things to the king. The king wants to know about what's going on and, you know, what's the law about this? Or the, the Chaldeans were supposed to know. And so that's probably the training for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They arrive. The first thing they do is make a fuss about the food. It is not uncommon for people to make a fuss about the food, but they're making the fuss in the wrong direction. They're given the best of the king's food. They decide they don't want to eat the best of the king's food, but instead they want to eat what they call, what is uh, translated in the King James Version, pulse. They want to eat simple things. They want to eat basically vegetables is, is a, another translation of it. They, they simplify their diet. They go back to a diet that would have been similar to what they had at home. The king is going to have all kinds of clean and unclean foods on the, on the plate. He's going to have all kinds of alcoholic things on the plate. They choose not to take part in any of that. They choose to eat a very, very simple diet. They challenge the person who is, over, is their overseer to give them 10 days on such a diet and see if there's a difference. He does. They're able to be, they look more healthy. They look better. And so he allows them to continue to eat that. But it's interesting that the very first thing they do is set up a discussion about, about their diets. I'll come back to this as, the, as we process through here. But I want you to get this piece of information because it becomes significant when you talk about how a person handles the world that's out of control. When you start looking at a world that's kind of running wild on you and, get, and looking out of control, how should you handle yourself? How should you, what should you do spiritually when you're dealing with a world that's going crazy? And one of the things, one of the key things we learn from Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is they go back to the simplicity of their faith. They step back to things they can control because so much of their life is out of control. So they take control in one area they can that relates to their spiritual life or relates to their religion. They ask about the food. They try to get themselves a handle on this one part. And you'll see this in through their lives as we go forward. I'll talk, we'll touch on them just a bit. And Pastor Marlene will touch on this a little bit tomorrow as well. But I wanted to just start there, get you a little background. So when we arrive, the Bible says, as we start, that we're starting in Daniel chapter 2. Or you note that it says, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar. The, the first chapter ends with, in the, they were taught for three years. Remember, there's a, something called an ascension year for a king. So a king would have a year that he arrives that is year zero. So if that's an eight-month year or a three-month year or whatever, that's the ascension year. And then the years will begin counting after that. So second year of Nebuchadnezzar, third year of their training, means he arrived somewhere around the first of the year to begin his reign. So that's what the discrepancy is be- between the two. As we begin the, tonight, I want to uh, start you here. I want to start with this passage, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Psalm 4610, this is after the Assyrians had attacked Jerusalem, and they write the psalm, and in the middle of this psalm is this statement from God, be still and know that I am God. Understand that with, where that takes place, um, what God is saying to Israel is, look, even when things are out of control, be still. Even when things are going crazy in your life, be still. Even when you're not aware, not comfortable, when you're we're worried about stuff, be still, but be still in the knowledge that I'm still on my throne. It's one of the things that I, I have practiced saying to myself for the recent, over recent years is God is still on his throne. God is still on his throne. 
Craziness is happening, but God is still on his throne. And nothing about today is a surprise to God. God is still on his throne, and nothing about today is a surprise to God. So as we talk about this, I want to start there because I think the stillness of these guys is significant. So let's start with a little orientation as to where we are. This is, in fact, a map of what is known as the Fertile Crescent. This green space is called the Fertile Crescent. You can see the sea, okay? It really runs from, from what is the Nile, which is right down here, from the Nile all the way around to Ur, the Chaldees, down here, Babylon being this place right here. This is the, the um, Mediterranean Sea. That's the Nile Delta right there. And so you can kind of get a grasp of what we're looking at. Daniel's being moved from here to here, and the route that he's being sent on is like this. So it's up. There's some rivers right in this area. There are hill country up here. The Jordan River headwaters are right up in here, so there would be water all the way up in here. You would cross over, then pick up the river that actually runs through and near Damascus, and you could travel up to it. You're into the hills here. In the hill country, you would be following streams and other water sources. And finally, you'd be traveling down, in this case, the Euphrates River to Babylon, so you would have water supply. The biggest concern is water supply for the trip. This is a 400-mile trip, okay? What's interesting about that is when Nebuchadnezzar captures Jerusalem, he finds out his father, Nabopolizer, has died. He grabs a handful of his soldiers, and he makes a, dread, a straight march across there in order to get to Babylon in time before someone else claimed the throne. So very few times has that happened, but we know in this story it actually happened. Went, they went straight, the, straight across the 400 mile across the desert route. So for us, this will give you a picture of, imagine being captured here, hauled all this way to a new land, and had your whole life changed. So Daniel chapter 2, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to all to call the magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. Magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, again, are the, are the historians. Everybody else is sort of a sleight of hand person, okay? Magicians, astrologers, sorcerers. I don't believe in any of them, but the Chaldeans would be people who bring historical records forward. So he has them all come to tell him his dream. Now, if you remember the story at all, if you've read the story, the king is intent on them telling his dream. Verse 4 says, Then the Chaldeans, and the king said to them, sorry, verse 3, I've had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Stop there for a second and realize that Aramaic becomes the, the language that most of the returning Jews will speak all the way up to the time of Jesus. Jesus spoke Aramaic and probably Greek. So they pick up this Babylonian language and it becomes the normal language that they use. They probably also still spoke Hebrew, but Aramaic is the lingua franca. You know what that means? It's the common language. That was the language that they would normally speak. So he speaks to the king in Aramaic. The Chaldeans do. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. Therein lies the problem. Tell us the dream. We'll tell you what it means. Simple. So if you reveal what your story is, we will give you a story that explains that thing. Now think about it for just a second. They can tell him anything. As long as they agree on it, they can tell him anything. The king is a new king. These people are not new to the thing. So like a lot of new people arriving, 
they're not sure about the cabinet who was part of the previous administration. Have you ever noticed that when a new president is elected, they kick out almost all of the cabinet and they put in a whole bunch of new people? It's because they don't trust the, the other person's, the other people, the other president's people. Same thing with this king. He's not sure about these guys. And so he's not sure he wants to trust them with what he's going to be uh, needing. So the Chaldeans spoke to the king. And oh, sorry, I did that already. Let me try that again. So the king is, un, un, is unhappy about it and then tells them, Sorry, I'm, gonna ha- I will, I'm looking at the wrong thing. I'm looking up there to get a change of something I want down here. There we go. I'm used to looking at the screen up there instead of the screen over here. You'll have to help me get used to it. So if I, go, if I start looking up there, somebody wave your hands and point at this one, okay? So the king answered, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made as sheeps. Is he being clear about the problem? If you don't tell me both the dream and its interpretation, you will be chopped into little pieces and your houses will be burned down. So he's, he's real serious that they're going to have to come up with the answer that he needs them to come up with. And so I would be serious about this. The, 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 these guys, the magicians, Chaldeans, this is a lot of people. This could be upwards of two or 300 people, not in the room, but under threat. Okay, so the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's, the, the king's matter. Therefore, no king has ever asked such a thing. No king has ever asked anyone to do something crazy like this. It is a difficult thing that the king requests. There is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods. Only the gods know. Only God knows. What you are asking is too big for us. Only God knows. This is an important part of the story now because the, king, the, the king's leaders, the king's uh, advisors have now said, no human could tell you this. They have set the king up for Daniel's entrance. We don't think of it that way, but that's what happened. They've just prepared the king for what's about to happen in the rest of the story. We've read the rest of the story. I've read the rest of the story. I know what's going to happen next, but catch the setup because these people who are his advisors say only the gods could tell you a thing like this. Whose dwelling is not with flesh, is not with earth, it's not with humans. This is God beyond our reach. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Now we know that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his friends, the guys we introduced to in chapter 1, are not present because they go looking for them in just a minute. So as they do that, we we have to understand that we're dealing with a king who's all-powerful and really angry, okay? This is a, we get this picture from Nebuchadnezzar regularly. We'll come to this a couple of times with Nebuchadnezzar. He apparently has a pretty hot temper. When he gets hot, kill them all. Just kill everybody. We'll start fresh. Now, he's just brought a bunch of captives from Israel and turned them in to people who will be his advisors. They've only been around for three years, and now he's ready to kill them and start fresh. Absolute authority, absolute power. You have to do what he says. And now he wants to kill them all. So they begin to process. They start looking. If you're you're following along in your Bible, you'll see that they start going out. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men of Babylon. They began killing 
And can you still be still? They've come hunting for you. Are you still still? Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Daniel, it's okay. Be still. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men. They sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel spoke to Arioch. Arioch's the guy who's been sent out to gather them up to be killed. With wisdom and counsel, he he speaks to Arioch. He doesn't lose his head. He stays calm, and he speaks carefully to this man who's in charge of his death. Now, I picture myself under a death threat. I imagine what I might be doing if I were under a death threat. I might be hiding. I'm certainly not going to be calm. How calm is he? How comfortable is he that God is still on his throne to be able to take this pact, this, this little tack with the man who's been sent to kill him? The captain of the guard who had gone out to kill him, the, the, killed the wise men of Babylon. Why is this decree from the king so urgent? He's accused these guys of trying to buy time by stalling to, to try to get some kind of a thing figured out here. But he's, he's now urgently saying, kill them all. Then Ariok made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time. Very thing that he denies of the others, Daniel comes and asks him for. That he might tell the king the interpretation. So Daniel says to him, look, I think I can give you both the dream and its interpretation, but I'm going to need a little time. And the king grants him time. Now, we don't know what the king said. The king may have said, I'll give you until tomorrow morning. I'll give you 12 hours, or I'll give you 24 hours, or whatever. We don't know what the rest of the conversation was, but he asks for the very thing the king denies. And the king provides for him because there's a shadow over, over Daniel. There's a, there's a provision of God over Daniel. Daniel has been in his favor from the beginning. God is preparing these two for a very special bond and a very special relationship. Let me not get ahead of the story because there's some great things that happen in this story that I can, I'll wait and tell you in the, later, in the week, later in the weekend. Then Daniel went to his house made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's other names. Okay, These are their Babylonian names. His companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning the secret. So he goes home, he tells his prayer buddies, we need some help. We need to pray. Because the king's going to kill us all if we don't come up with an answer to this question. What was the dream, and what does it mean? So Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men. Of Babylon, the secret was revealed to Daniel. What, when was it revealed? What does it say? In a night vision. When you're having a vision at night, that means you went to sleep. A night vision is a dream or something that happens while you're sleeping. So our guy Daniel goes home, tells his buddies, we need to find out the information. They pray and then they go to sleep. This to me is stillness. This is the kind of trust in God that I'm looking for when things are going crazy in my world. I want to be so comfortable with God that I can just go, okay, I will put my head on the pillow and I will trust God to take care of things between now and whenever. They go to sleep. Daniel has a dream. And during the night, the secret of the king is revealed to him. So 
Daniel blesses the God of heaven. He wakes up, blesses the God of heaven. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might, and might are his. And he changes the times and season. He removes kings and he raises up kings. He says, God is actually in charge of everything. He sets the times for things. He removes kings and he raises up kings. He is saying God is on his throne. He's control of everything that's going on. Blessed be our God. He is actually in, call, in control. Now, remember, Daniel has been captured in Jerusalem. He and 10,000 other people have been taken by the Babylonians and hauled on this thousand-mile trip around the Fertile Crescent down to Babylon. He's probably been made a eunuch. He's been forced to change his name. He's been forced to learn the Babylonian language, the Babylonian history, Babylonian rules and laws. He, they are trying really hard to indoctrinate him and make him into a Babylonian. He is still not bitter. You never find a part of this story where it says Daniel was bitter or angry or frustrated with what had been done to him. He's not bitter about not being home, about the changes that are going on. He's not bitter because he's still trusting in God. Here's a piece we should take away from this. We should always remember that no matter what our circumstances are, God is still on his throne and we can still be at peace because God is God. And we can trust him. We can put our faith in him. Daniel and his buddies go to sleep. They wake up and they say, God is good. God is in charge. God is, sets up kings and, put, and set, puts kings down. God sets the times of the day, sets the times for the planets. He sets up everything. He's in charge of everything. God can be trusted. So Daniel begins to see this vision. He sees this great statue made of multi-levels of metal. He sees that its feet are made of iron and clay. And he sees this stone that comes out without hands and crashes into the bottom of it and turns it into dust that blows away on the wind. Daniel sees the vision the king saw. And now he comes to report it to the king. Verse 23. I thank you and praise you, O God, my father. You have given me wisdom and might. You are under a death threat. The king is really angry. And you have might. Where do you get might? Where do you get strength? Where do you get courage? You get it from God. Because in the reality that God is on his throne is the ability to face whatever comes. I am, uh, I am arriving at a point in my life where I am past the time when I have more days ahead of me than behind me. So I am now basically on the other side of that number where there are fewer days ahead of me than those behind me. Something happens in there. Some, t- some point a switch gets flipped and you start looking toward the other side of, of, the end of, of, your, of your life, the other half of your life. And you start thinking about that future, what that means. And something has become aware, aware to me. I've become aware of something as I've realized that my life will end if Jesus doesn't come first. And it is this simple fact. If I close my eyes on this planet for the last time and take my last breath, the next time I open my eyes and the next breath I take, I will see Jesus. And if that's a part of who I identify as, it really takes the sting out of death. It takes the worry out of those things. And so Daniel can face this death threat he can face this limited time frame to get this information. And he gets the information and he praises God for the wisdom he's given and then strengthening he's been given. 
We don't know it now. Daniel doesn't know it now. But it'll be 70 years of captivity for the people of Babylon, for the people of Israel in Babylon. Daniel will research this. We'll find it out. Um, we'll talk a little bit about it on Sunday, but we'll really look at it next Friday night. But that he knows, and he will figure this out later, but that's the, that's the plan. That's what's going to happen. Daniel will grow old in Babylon. At most, he's about 17. Most scholars don't think he's any older than that, maybe a tiny bit younger, because the Babylonians wouldn't want a 40-year-old man to be trained. So Daniel, when he, Daniel's going to grow old in Babylon. Daniel does not return from Babylon. He will take his last breath. He will see his last sight in this very country, in this very place. He'll actually serve both the Babylonians and the Persians. All that is laying out in front of him, but he is calm because he trusts that God is in control. God is on his throne. So Ariok quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, the king, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation of the dream. Now, I have found a man. I love how Ariok takes, takes the, uh, the credit here. I found a guy who's going to help you out, king. I have found a man among the Jews, among the captives of Israel, who's going to be able to tell you the interpretation of your dream. Then Daniel, being introduced to the king, said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. So I want you to understand, he starts out with, there's nobody who can tell you the answer to this. He starts out by saying, the people you asked for an answer don't have an answer because they couldn't give you an answer. It's impossible for them to give you an answer. But then this line, but there is a God in heaven. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And his, he has made known to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days. He's told you what's coming. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have been more wisdom than anyone living. But for, this, for our sake, who make known the interpretation to the king, that you may know the thoughts on your heart. Humility is his secret. He's humbly, humbly trusting in God. This is keeping him still. This is keeping him comfortable. This is keeping him rooted in the midst of this craziness. I didn't learn this on my own. God has revealed it to me. He's given it to us so he won't kill us. You, O king, were watching. Now imagine if you're the king. Everybody is telling you, no one can tell you this dream. And then this guy tells you the dream. It's like he's inside your head. It's like he's inside your memory bank. It's like he was there with you watching the same dream because Daniel gets the same dream the king got. Let me stop you just for a second. What if it's wrong? What if the dream Daniel had wasn't the dream the king saw? Chop you into little pieces, turn your house into an ash heap. Remember, that's the story. That's what's going to happen. But Daniel is so certain that God has shown him the dream of the king he does not hesitate. He, there's no if here. If I saw what you saw, king, then blah, blah, blah. It's just no. Here's what you saw. Watching and beheld a great, a great image, a great image whose splendor was excellent and stood before you, and its form was awesome. You saw something really cool. You saw this amazing thing. The image, image, image's head was of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were of bronze. Its legs were of iron. And its feet, which are getting crushed right now, you can see that one, were of iron 
and clay, iron mixed with clay. So as the king hears this, he's probably going, okay, wow, good job. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, and the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff on the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Here's what you saw. I changed images on you. If you saw this image, gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron and clay. Most precious, but soft. Next most precious, a little harder. Next most precious, pretty hard. Next most precious, very hard. But it's standing on feet of iron mixed with clay. There is strength in the feet, and there is weakness and brittleness in the feet. You go down this list and you go through from the most precious to the most weak of, the, of this empire. So what he's actually seeing, what he's going to, show, going to tell the king is that this image tells the future. Daniel tells the king that you, O king, are the head of gold. You, king of Babylon, are the head of gold. The Babylonian kingdom is the head of gold. He tells him, after you will come a kingdom not as great as yours, not as beautiful as yours, not as cool as yours, but it will be stronger. It will be the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. We know that after Babylon, we know historically, we can go back and look at the records. This is all things that have happened already. We know these things are true. We know that after Babylon, a, a, a group, a, a, unifi a unified enemy comes toward him. The Medes are from the northern portion of that fertile crescent. So if you remember that fertile crescent, they're from the northern portion. The Persians are directly to the east. You know of the Persian Empire, you've heard of the Persians, it's Iran of today. The northern portion of this is up in what would be northern Iraq into the stand. Kurdistan, etc. stand up there. Okay? That's where the Medes were from. The Medes and the Pers unite, Persians unite to kick out the Babylonian king. They come through and they in fact take Babylon. We'll come to that Again, we'll, we'll pick that out a little bit more in the future. But that's where it happens. The next kingdom is Medo-Persia. After that will come Greece. You remember Greece? You remember Alexander the Great? Alexander the Great's father, excuse me, Philip of Macedon, unites the Grecian peninsula for the first time. Greece, Greece and the peninsula around it was a bunch of city-states. Okay, Athens was its own city and its own little state around it. Those, that was the model of the Grecian of the Grecian Peninsula. This guy from, from, from Macedonia named Philip, Philip of Macedon, unites the entirety of the region, which makes them a much stronger nation, a much stronger force, and they are the ones who then take the kingdom away from the Persians. You remember the Greeks and the Persians. You, you remember stories about the battles between the Greeks and the Persians. As the Persian Empire blows up, it takes everything from the western India all the way down to Egypt, takes that whole section... But it's, it's wanting to go west, and the Greeks are holding it back from crossing, and crossing into their empire and crossing into their state and moving west. You remember the 300? Remember the story of the 300? The Spartans come up and they hold the pass and keep the Persians from, in, from their incursion into Athens and destruction of Athens. That's the conflict that is right in between here. 
as the Persians are trying to move west, it's the Greeks who are holding them back. And there's this push and pull and push and pull between the Greeks and the Persians. So this is history. This is, this is your high school history class. This is your college history class. So this, this should be in the back of your mind somewhere that you had Babylon, this great kingdom. This is actually Neo-Babylon. There was one before it. Then the Persian kingdom, it becomes just called the Persian kingdom because they drop the Medes after a while. They don't even, Medo-Persia is not even mentioned. Medes are not even mentioned. But it is a two-part kingdom when it starts. Then the Greeks. And then after the Greeks, we have the Romans. The Romans come to, come to count. And remember that they are the iron and clay. They are the iron legs because the Romans are the most powerful and the largest of these empires. The Greeks take the room from Greece and they go east and south. They take back the Fertile Crescent. They go all the way to the Indus Valley in Egypt or in India. And they, go, they move into the land around Greece. And that's what they're happy with. They don't go west. They don't try to go up and around and attack Italy and Rome. Do you remember what's at the top of Italy? The Alps. And it gives a great deal of protection to Italy. If you're going to attack Italy, you have to cross water, which back then, naval attacks were less common than they are now. And there was a lot of concern about having to do a naval attack. And to get to Rome, you had to go over the Alps and come down. The Greeks seem to be happy with what they have. You remember that right after Alexander the Great, they are, they, it's divided up among his generals. We'll cover that some more later as well. And so they, they just settle in. The Roman Empire, on the other hand, is growing and becoming stronger off in the West. And they show up on the scene and they march in. They take all of the Fertile Crescent. Again, everybody wants the Fertile Crescent. Everybody wants the, the land of Egypt and the bounty of Egypt's productive power. They want the trade routes from the east, which are controlled through the Tigris, the Euphrates, and the, the Grecian Peninsula, and particularly Antioch, which is a, a country held just above Tyre and Sidon, or a city-state held just above Tyre and Sidon. So you have Jerusalem, Tyre and Sidon, Antioch up here. They all want to control that because the trade from the east is coming straight through there. Okay? So the Romans come in. They take all those same things, but the Romans don't stop. The Romans take North Africa. The Romans end up going all the way through Europe, although they stop at the Rhine River because of the crazy Germans. They go all the way north. They cross the channel because now they're getting better ships as time goes by. They then fight a battle in England. They control. They first move it into Londonium and they build this big Roman city around the, the, the capital city of London. And they take the, the English, the great Brit, English part of Great Britain and they build a wall called Hadrian's Wall to hold the Scots back on the other side because they're too crazy to want to deal with. So the Romans just build a wall and say, you stay on that side. They did the same thing to the Germans. They built a wall and say, you stay on your side, we'll be okay. They say the same thing to the Scots. You stay on your side, we'll be, we'll be okay. But they control everything from England to Italy to, the, to the, the edge of Africa. They don't go past the Sahara. They stay in northern Africa. Out to the Atlantic in the Mediterranean. It's a massive, powerful empire. The Romans are a very strong nation represented by the, these iron legs. They're a mobile, very mobile nation. I wonder if that's perhaps why a statue is a good thing because the statue has two here with the Medo-Persians, two arms crossed. And then you have a very mobile nation in the, in the Romans that will travel. And it also has two parts. It has an empire prior or around the time of Christ. And prior to that, it is a republic. Both very strong. Then, 
the, the, the picture that he's given is that this will be followed by a mixture. Here's the funny thing about this. If you're busy telling someone there's going to be empire, 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 suddenly you stop and you say there's, it's empire taken over by the next empire, taken over by the next empire, taken over by the next empire. But then instead of the empire being taken over, the empire kind of dissolves into these ten toes. There's no longer another empire. You don't see him saying. Daniel does not say, and then there's a fifth empire, and then there'll be a sixth empire, and seventh. there's going to be empire after empire. If he's guessing, and this is what some people have said, he's just a good guesser. This is, this too, you might have said, okay, there's going to be another empire after you, okay? These two are a little a bit of a long shot, but okay, maybe he guesses that there are going to be a bunch of empires coming. But how does he guess Europe? No one, the Romans didn't guess Europe. And they were right there in it. No one could guess that that was the next thing. That it was going to be divided up. And it was going to divide up into nations. Some strong and some weak. They would be bound together. Though they were strong and weak, they wouldn't fully mix in order to become a strong empire. Even though if you know anything about European history, there were lots of people who tried to make Europe back into an empire. Lots of leaders in the, in, in the midst of, of the... Uh, European countries tried to make Europe into an empire. No one has succeeded. Every time they try, something gets in the way and they end up being remaining divided. Borders move a little bit, but it remains divided. Here's the, the thing that you need to understand about this as I see it. If there's ever a thing to tell you that the Bible can be trusted, it's something like that. How does Daniel do this 2,500 plus years ago? If it is not God who is telling the king the, the story, if it is not God who is revealing the meaning of this dream to Daniel, who did? Because you got a lot of explaining to do about how this could possibly have been laid out in front of this man. This becomes the anchor of our understanding of the text of the scripture as, it's, as Daniel begins to lay out more and more details about this in his book. So then Daniel says, and in the days of those kings, in the days when Europe still exists, think about that for a second. None of these kingdoms last more than a few hundred years except for Rome. Okay? Rome lasts a long time. But it says, that the text says, in the days of these kingdoms, so you're going to have empire, so Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the divided Rome, and while that still exists, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. If you put a clock on this, you would say, you would think, okay, the clock goes around from 12, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the divided kingdom, God. But it's actually Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the divided kingdom, and we're still waiting. Think of how long Europe has existed. The European divisions of Rome, if they, if they haven't started at 500 A.D., they look really close. They're right on the border of it. 
The Huns come in off the plains of what, we, what is modern-day Russia, China. They, the Huns come in. The Huns start dividing up and pushing the peoples that are resident in Europe around. They begin to take pieces of land. Rome begins to crumble under the weight of, this, of these attacks from these barbarians. The leading Roman Empire, Emperor Constantine in 300 sees this all coming and bails, goes off to Constantinople and builds his fortress city. And he leaves Europe to kind of dissolve into what it is today. The Romans have chased out the Celts, known as the Gauls to them, back to England basically. The Franks have moved in in the, in the movements of the Germanics. And then the Huns come in. And as the Huns come in, they upset everything. People start running off the land that they have been in. The Ostrogoths move down into, the north, into northeastern Rome. The Visigoths move off into Portugal. They start looking for, for safe haven to get away from these crazy Huns. Rome disintegrates under the weight of a barbarian attack and becomes what we know as Europe today. And that has been going on for 1,500 years. No one could have guessed. Wouldn't you have guessed that this would be the longest one because your legs are a lot bigger than your feet? If your feet are bigger than your legs, you're a clown. Right? The legs are a lot longer. You would expect Rome to be the longest thing, but it ends up that this divided group of nations that is modern-day Europe, according to the Bible, will exist until Jesus comes. You see, the text is saying that eventually God will set up his own kingdom and he will destroy this last bit. That the end of time will come during the time of those kings. And we still live with those kings. The king answers Daniel and says, Truly, your God is a God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Truly, your God is a God of gods. Here's the deal. When Daniel came into the king, who did he give credit to? God. Well, if you go back to the, the Chaldeans and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the magicians, they said, nobody could tell you this but God. Daniel comes in and he says, of course your astrologers, your magicians, your Chaldeans, they couldn't tell you this because no one could tell you this but God. And there's a God in heaven who tells secrets to men. And oh, by the way, I got your secret. Tells him the whole story. And then this one man's influence, one follower of Jesus, one follower of God, now has told the king who rules the entire region. The God of heaven is the one who told me. And the king says, whoa. Your God is real. Your God is the God of all gods. We don't see an immediate conversion of this man. In the next chapter, he builds a giant gold statue. I think he takes the same statue he'd been looking at in his dream and makes it all gold because he wants to declare himself the forever king. And he tries to make people worship it. So this, this is not the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. But do you remember your conversion? Do you remember your conversion takes time, it takes process? People are, are learning as they go, and as they grow in their information and their understanding of God, conversion takes place. Tomorrow, Pastor Marlene will talk about the conversion moment for him. Pastor Marlene will talk about the conversion of this king. 
He will build this great statue. He will threaten the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be thrown into the, the fiery furnace. Even people who never studied the Bible have heard this fiery furnace story. Three men being thrown into the fiery furnace. By the way, a lot of scholars believe that he was using something akin to tar to burn this furnace. If you remember, that whole region is full of oil. And there's, there's a biblical story about them using tar for things. Um, remember the Tower of Babel was stuck together with tar. He probably uses something like tar to build this furnace. Imagine the stink and the, the heat of it. And they throw them in and they survive. But before they go in, they tell the king, King, we, don't, we are not going to bow down to your idols. Because our God is able to save us. He may not. We may die. But he's capable of saving us. We're not bowing down. The king gets enraged, gets angry. He doesn't chop up up into little bits and turn their houses into ash heaps. He simply has the fire heated up seven times hotter and throws them in. The three men land in the furnace. Four men are found walking in the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar says, look at this. There's someone in the furnace with them, and he looks like the son of the gods, depending on how you get translated in your Bible. And he calls them out, and the only thing that the fire of man has burned is the ropes that bound them. There is not the smell of fire. There is not a hair of their head that's burned, and none of their clothes is burned. The Bible makes a point of telling you that they're fully clothed and they come out with no burn marks on them, no burn marks on their clothes, not even the smell of smoke. And if this was a tar fire, the smell of smoke would have been amazingly bad. You see, when somebody is facing ultimate destruction, the roots of your faith are the things that hold you up. They go back to the food in the first chapter. They go back to pray and ask God's leadership in the second chapter. The third chapter, no matter whether they're facing a death threat or not, they say, I'm not bowing to your God because he's not real. Throw me in there if you need to. There's a real God and he might save me. And I trust him. So I want to just, I want to pause and remind us that in spite of the upheaval of our moment in history, in spite of all of the turmoil that we are dealing with as we live presently, there is a God who is real, who cares about what happens to you, and who, if you will lean on him, if you will lean into your faith in him, he will give you the stillness. He will give you the peace to deal with all that's going on. God is still God, even in political season. God is still God, even in, what are we, seventh or eighth month of COVID. God is still God, whether your family's falling apart or not, whether your finances are falling apart or not. God is still God, no matter how much turmoil may be happening in your life. And he desires to help you and bless you. These guys, in the midst of being faced with death, lean into God. They move closer to God. 
because their faith is in the reality that God is stronger, God is more capable than any human or anything on the planet. And so the story concludes with this phrase. Daniel tells the king, the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. And we have seen this and this and this and this and this crazy thing and all that's left is the rock. In the days of those kings, God will set up for himself a kingdom that will never end. 2,500 plus years ago, the prophet describes history from Babylon to today. It's the wildest thing. But that's your God. He knows the end while he's still at the beginning. The scriptures can be trusted. These are anchors for your faith. So I invite you tonight to anchor your faith deep in what the text, what the scripture says. And in faith in the God who knows the end from the beginning and proved it to you in the book of Daniel. Let's pray. Father God, as we talk through this weekend about Daniel and the discoveries and prophecies that are there, I pray that you will remind us that Daniel is not only teaching us about prophecy and about timelines and about the world as it is and will be, but that Daniel is also teaching us that we can trust you. We can trust what you say, and we can trust your word. Lord, I ask that you would deepen our faith in you, that you would teach us how to live and love and be your followers during this time. Help us to go back to the basics. Love God and love our neighbor. To serve you, trust you, and follow the commands that you've given us. Lord, the Sabbath has arrived. Embrace us in it and help us to trust you through it. That we can stop. We can be still. We can know that you love us. In your name we pray. Thank you all very much for being with us tonight. Tomorrow night, 6.30, we'll be tackling Daniel chapter 7. The first part of this book are, is Daniel talking about the dreams of others. The last chapters of this book is Daniel explaining his own dream. Have a great night. If you're watching us online, I hope you are blessed. I hope this was helpful. And I hope you also have a great night.